When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. And haven't we got a podcast for you this week? It's a pretty special one. Imagine for a moment that you've spent decades with a chair in your home It's in all your family photos, it holds a place in your children's childhood memory bank. In fact, you love it so much that instead of throwing it away and replacing it, you take it to get reupholstered. You go and pick it up, and, well, you only find out that inside the chair the whole time were secret hidden Nazi files. Files from an SS officer and a perpetrator of the Holocaust. Well, imagine no more, because this is the story that was told to Daniel Lee, from Queen Mary University in London. He's a historian, and from this point onwards, he became a historical detective, tracing down the history of this SS officer in the files. He tracked down the family of the officer, and bizarrely, his own family history got intertwined in the mix. This is an astonishing story. Now, follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, and you can follow me on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, But now, here is Daniel Lee with the story of the SS officer's armchair, which just so happens to be the title of his new book. Enjoy! Hi Daniel, thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. Oh my gosh, James, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. No worries at all. How are you doing? Because you're a history professor, aren't you, in the UK? So how's teaching in COVID been? Yeah, I think like most academics in British universities who've been teaching this semester, I think the students have done a fantastic job. And I think we've all learned a lot, a lot about teaching and a lot about students this year. Yeah, it's a bit of death by Zoom and Skype, but hopefully everyone will have a new book to read. Your new book, I hope so. The book is now out after many, many years, so it's. I do hope that people are adding this to their list. Well, let's go into the topic of the book, because I'm not sure how best to describe you and your work, but the closest way to put it, probably, is that you're almost a historical detective, and you've been investigating the life of one man in particular, an SS officer from Stuttgart. Who was he? So Robert Griesinger, you're absolutely right to ask this question. Nobody has heard of Robert Griesinger until now, really. He's not Hitler or Himmler or any of these big guys at the top who historians and everybody really has heard of. He is just one of these very, very low-ranking 
individuals who was in the SS, who was a civil servant, a lawyer by training, and who was basically, I suppose, a cog in the wheel of the Nazi machinery. As you said, he was born in Stuttgart. He studied at Tübingen University and he joined the party rather late, but perhaps we can talk about that when I get into the nitty gritty. But all there is to say about him that listeners can take away is that he's really just one of these ordinary Nazis, for want of a better expression, very much somebody who signed up to the Nazi party in 1933. He hadn't shown an interest in Nazism before that, very much an opportunist. And he was going to make sure that he was going to play his part in the new regime. So we're used to these big histories, these key figures, but what you're saying here is that we're focusing on a more everyday part of the Nazi cog. But this guy, was he not just simply a nameless, faceless bureaucrat? Why is he important for us to know about? Well, I think that what we need to do is precisely turn our focus, turn our gaze away from the people at the top. Yes, he is a nameless, faceless bureaucrat, but these are precisely the people who I think are most interesting. These are the enablers. These are the people without whom it would have been completely impossible to sort of operate the whole Nazi machine. And I think it's really important that we return texture and agency to some of these people who have been totally lost from history to actually understand a little bit more about how the Third Reich operated, who were some of these people who were functioning behind the scenes a little bit. And given that I've discovered so much about him over the course of so many years, in a way, allow him perhaps to stand in for some of these other hundreds of thousands of nameless and faceless bureaucrats whose stories will probably never be told. That's a really interesting point, because it's these key figures in what we might seem as unimportant positions that drove the regime and allowed them to achieve and do all the horrible things, horrendous things that they did. Daniel, I've got to ask, how did you end up focusing down so much on one particular figure? So thanks for the questions. He came to me, basically. It was sort of every historian's dream opportunity. So I'm a historian of the Second World War. I've published on mainly on Jews in France and French North Africa during the occupation. And when I finished my PhD in 2011, I moved to Italy to do research. And shortly after arriving, I didn't know anybody in Florence, which is the university where I was. A couple of us got together and we organised an evening, a party, if you like, and it was at this event that somebody just came up to me and said, oh, you're that historian of the Second World War. Something extraordinary just happened to my mother. And I was thinking, gosh, OK, well, you know, when you're a historian of the Second World War, as you know, people come up to you all the time and they want to share their stories with you. They tell you about grandfathers who are in the resistance or aunts who might have been deported. But these things happened many, many years ago. So the fact that something had just happened to this young woman's mother immediately caught my interest. And it was at that moment in Florence that she just told me how her mother had taken this old armchair to be reupholstered in Amsterdam, where they were living. And when she went back a few days later to collect the armchair, the person doing the work was quite flustered, quite angry with her. And he sort of said, well, what is this? I don't do work for Nazis or their families. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. 
And he had this man doing the work, the upholsterer in Amsterdam, he just presumed that everything he had discovered belonged to this woman's father. Everything was in the name of Robert Griesinger from Stuttgart. And he just presumed that this was his daughter and that these were the documents he'd discovered, which had been in the family. And this woman was totally flabbergasted. She had absolutely no idea who Robert Griesinger was or how his documents ended up in the armchair. She hadn't inherited the chair from anybody. She'd bought the chair in the 1960s. She was a student. She was Czech. She was in Prague and she was 18. And like all of us, she just needed some cheap furniture as a student to furnish her student digs. So she's walking around the old city of Prague. She's getting a bed frame. She's getting a table, chair, what have you. And this chair, this beautiful old armchair, she kept it for all these years. In the 1980s, when some families were allowed to leave communist Czechoslovakia, she took the armchair with her. So the armchair, it's sort of in the background of a lot of these family pictures. The woman who came up to me in Florence, she told me that, you know, I had done my homework as a girl sitting on this armchair with these documents underneath me. I really want to know who was Robert Griesinger and how on earth did his documents end up inside this armchair in my bedroom? Oh, imagine that. All those years in your house and you've got this SS armchair and the documents just sitting there. What were in the documents, Daniel? So they're totally, they are the most personal documents that you can imagine. It's really much the collection, the whole collection of one's identification. You just cannot live without these. So we're talking passport from the mid-1940s. We're talking stocks and shares that had never been cashed worth a fortune. We're talking PhD certificate in law, all belonging to this one person. So really the kind of things that you would keep with you in your breast pocket in your wallet every single day, not the kinds of things that you would necessarily put inside an armchair. So from these documents, Robert sounds like a pretty educated man and someone who well, was relatively wealthy. What were you able to learn from his personal and family history that shows you why he went on this path into the Nazi party and became an officer in the SS? So... I had to do a lot of work to find out about his family history because just tracing an ordinary person like Griesinger who didn't leave much in terms of history and archives or when you look at him online or in books, there's absolutely nothing there. So it really was a question of sort of rolling up the sleeves and going to do a lot of this archival work from scratch, going to Prague where he had spent the Second World War. That revealed for me pretty early on, actually, that he was in the SS. So knowing that he was in the SS, I was therefore able to go to Berlin in the hope that I could find his SS file. And that was really key to this investigation. Because in Berlin, as you know, as so many of your listeners know, most of the SS archives were destroyed, either by Allied bombings, or by the Nazis themselves, the SS themselves, towards the end of the war, setting fire to their own papers. So I was really lucky that I managed to find Griesinger's entire SS dossier intact. And so this was my road into his personal life, into his background. It really, for example, it really showed how much was required of him to prove his Aryan ancestry. To be in the SS, of course, he needed to show where his parents were from and their parents, etc., etc., just to make sure there was no Jewish or any other indesirable blood. And so one of the really interesting things I discovered there was his mother was born in Germany. His father wasn't born in Germany, and that I found quite interesting 
from the start, because in my head and in my previous research, so many of these Nazis, they had this ancestry in Germany, or at least in Europe, that went back many, many generations. Whereas what I saw with Griesinger was that his father was actually born in New Orleans, Louisiana, in 1870. And I was able to trace his family's roots in Louisiana all the way back to the 1720s, so a really long time that his family, or at least part of his family, had been in the American South. And doing archival research in New Orleans as I'm tracing his family there showed, again, a, a fascinating family, if you like. Really, everyone, and I mean everyone, was in one way or another involved in the slave trade. Almost all of his ancestors owned an enslaved person at one time or another. His grandmother, Robert Griesinger's grandmother, Lena, who he was extremely close to because she moved to Imperial Germany in the 1880s. She had grown up with an enslaved person in her house. Her father, looking through his archives, it was very clear that he had owned at least one enslaved person. So that's like the American side of his family, which was very important to him. It was an important part of his identity. And as he was growing up in Stuttgart, it really was one of these upper-middle-class, wealthy, conservative, patriotic, Protestant sort of Stuttgart notable families. It was, you know, they were among the upper echelons of Stuttgart society. Robert's father was a military man who had fought in the First World War. And the First World War was a really, really important moment in Robert Griesinger's life because he, Robert, like so many of these other people that turned eventually to Nazism, was born between 1900 and 1910. So this war youth generation that so many historians have written about, these young men who were too young to fight in the First World War, but boy, did the First World War mark them and mark the rest of their lives. You know, the end of the war, the catastrophe, the humiliation, it just sort of really played a decisive role in their development. It was the collapse of all the certainties that they had known, and they were a generation that was shaped by this national humiliation and disorder that came about at the end of the First World War. So I know this is a very long-winded way to answer your question, but one of the most important sources that I had available to me was family papers. It took ages for me to find Griesinger's family. Like I said, he left no trace at the end of the war. And so eventually, one day in Stuttgart, I was in the archives and I was so frustrated by all the silences that I was finding amid the administrative documents that I picked up the local phone book and I just phoned everybody in Stuttgart with the last name Griesinger until eventually somebody said, oh yes, that was my father's brother. Why are you interested? Anyway, he invited me over to the house the next day and this was amazing to finally meet somebody who was a close relative and he was able to tell me, Griesinger's nephew was able to tell me about the existence of Griesinger's daughters, Jutta and Barbara, who were still alive. And after several months, years even, of backwards and forwards, contact with the family, eventually I was able to have access to the family papers. And this included Robert Griesinger's mother's diary. She kept a diary from the day Robert was born until the day he went to university. So I had this amazing insight into the life of this young man growing up in the First World War, growing up under Weimar Germany, and just really understanding so much about him, which otherwise I would never have known. I've got so much to unpack there, Daniel. 
Number one, I think you're the luckiest historian I've ever interviewed. To be able to find those papers in the back of a chair, to be able to find his SS documents, and you're right, I've been to the German archives and there's just rarely anything there at all because it was all destroyed. And then, well, this is where your detective work kicks in, to ring around Stuttgart and to find the family. Were the family not a little hesitant of you to start with? They must have looked to guard that history quite protectively. I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is why the chair was so important, because without this remarkable story of the documents being discovered inside an armchair, I think they would have slammed the door in my face and thought I was crazy. It was really wanting to know more about the actual documents themselves, the history of the chair, everything to do with that side of the story. I don't think you could just knock on a German's door today and find out about the family's past. I had these documents. We eventually returned them to Griesinger's eldest daughter. And I suppose there's definitely no spoiler to say that Griesinger died in 1945, because I say that on the first page of the book. So his daughters, who were very young when he died, they were born in 1937 and 1939. They grew up after the Second World War without a father. And so they tried many, many times with their mother and with other relatives to get information about their father. But it just wasn't the right climate for that in post-war Germany. But they really, really, I think, at a certain point in their adolescence, just gave up. They didn't ask any more questions. And so they are now in their 80s and they've spent their whole lives wondering about their father, wanting to know more. And so all of a sudden, this British historian just shows up on their door with these documents, with this remarkable story of the chair. And this was an opportunity for them to interact with me in a way which perhaps they wouldn't have done otherwise. So I was able to ask them a lot of personal, deep family questions about the past. And I think they were comfortable asking because they knew that they would also be getting information from me. They could see that I was a serious historian who'd been to the archives, who was asking questions, who wasn't out to judge them, of course. And I think we created a really special relationship here. And I think just looking at the acknowledgements to my book, they are the first people I thank. I could not have done this project without them. This is so interesting because you're providing us here with a window that we can look through into the world of an SS officer and their family during the Second World War. So what have you learned about their life? What were their duties? What was expected of them? So Griesinger joins the SS in 1933, and he does so because he can't join the party. As I said earlier, he comes very late to Nazism. He's from this very right-wing background this conservative background in Stuttgart, which is a part of Germany which already has so many parties on the extreme right that they did. it's almost just that they didn't even need Nazism. When you look at the election results from the late 1920s, early 1930s, Stuttgart and the state of Württemberg, it never sort of votes en masse for Hitler like other parts of the country. It's always several percentage points behind. So what I'm saying here is that Griesinger didn't gravitate to Nazism particularly early. But when the Nazis took power in 33, this was the moment that he'd finished his PhD in law. He was about to embark on this new career in the civil service as a lawyer. And he realized pretty early on that he needed to show some kind of support for the regime. And to do so wouldn't have been a particularly difficult thing for him. Because as I said, he comes from this very reactionary conservative background 
anyway, which loathed Weimar, which loathed communism, something very clear in his mother's diary. And so the fact that early on the regime was setting its targets on socialists, on communists, for Griesinger, you know, this would not have been a big deal particularly. So he was able to sort of glide into this new regime, which by this time had banned party membership. So thanks to his background, thanks to his PhD in law, thanks to his family connections, he was able to join the SS. So he didn't even need to join the party. And what we see early on is Griesinger taking part in SS activities, sort of dipping his toes in and out. The SS at this time, in the early to mid-1930s, it doesn't have the same connotations, perhaps, as it does for many of us today, where we think of these men in black uniforms, the fact that it's a full-time occupation for many of these men. For most of the SS men in the general SS, like Griesinger, they would go maybe once or twice a month for an hour to their local SS gathering of their unit. They would listen to speeches, there would be songs, perhaps, that they would sing. They were always encouraged to bring their wives and children to the family events. So at this stage, it was very much more of a, they would pay their membership fees, they would turn up to meetings, at which they would wear their uniform. And if someone important came to town, they would be the bodyguards. They would line the streets of Stuttgart. But other than that, there weren't really many obligations for someone like Griesinger, who was in the SS at that time. It wasn't like someone who was in the Waffen-SS or someone who was in a permanent member of the SS, for example, in a concentration camp. You know, Griesinger had another full-time job. That was his life. And just like so many other thousands of doctors, lawyers and others, he only put on his SS uniform when he was attending meetings. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
So as a member of the SS, but also a lawyer as well, what was his role? You know, he wasn't a frontline fighter. Was he involved in things like anti-Semitic legislation? Yes. He was a lawyer at the Gestapo in Stuttgart, and he began working there in the summer of 1935. He'd been to England and France the year before to brush up on his English and French. And then when he returned to the southwest of Germany, he began this job at the Stuttgart Gestapo, which was run at the time by Walter Starlecker, who went on to this horrific position invading the Baltic. And I think he was responsible for the murder of tens of thousands of Jews in Estonia and Latvia. Anyway, Griesinger joins the Gestapo there under Starlecker. And a lot of what he's doing as a lawyer there is making sure that laws from Berlin, especially anti-Semitic laws, are being enforced locally. So he's not, for example, driving around the streets of Stuttgart, beating up Jews or communists or anything like that. He is very much tied to his desk. But nevertheless, you know, he knows exactly what is going on. So to give one example, the building where he worked, the Hotel Silber, this remains today. So many elderly people in Stuttgart in their 80s and 90s refused to even walk past it because they remember the stories they'd heard as children of the torture that took place in the cellars, in the basement cellars. So Griesinger would have, he wouldn't have been involved in any of that business. He'd have been upstairs at his typewriter, knowing all too well what was going on beneath him. So he was very much from the mid thirties onwards, he was part of this clan of lawyers, six, seven lawyers, Gestapo lawyers, based in Stuttgart, working closely together to make sure anti-Semitic laws were being implemented. And it was at this time that he got married and started a family in Stuttgart. This, to me, doesn't sound like your typical banality of evil narrative. It doesn't sound like somebody who's a bit of a jobsworth, who's being told what to do by those up above and just mindlessly putting it into action. This sounds like somebody who's got a family history of racism and who is an active Holocaust perpetrator. Am I right or is that unfair? No, you're absolutely right. Not only is his anti-communism, his anti-Semitism extremely ingrained from what I'm seeing from his mother's diary and then the connections he makes at university. He goes to Tübingen University. You wouldn't have found a more anti-Semitic university. They didn't even allow Jews at that university. He joins this dueling society, again, one of the most right-wing anti-Semitic monarchists that was available to him. And again, anti-Semitism was everywhere in his youth, especially at university. It was here at university as part of his dueling society. He got his scar that ran across his face, something very important that all, all young men of his class had to have. But again, just looking at his New Orleans side, there we see the fact that there is so much racism and you don't, of course, you don't need racist ancestors to be racist yourself. But nevertheless, I think that some of the stories he had inherited about the family's past in New Orleans, some of its connections with slavery, the differences between races, a lot of this would have resonated with Griesinger and with his family when the Nazis came to power and began to put into force some of their own racial legislation. I think what's fascinating about your book is that we so often hear these broad narratives about just how much the First World War affected people's lives and how it led to the rise of Nazism. But your book really is kind of where the rubber meets the tarmac. And we can see how this develops day to day, year by year, in Nazi Germany. 
One of the questions I've got to ask is, he's based in Prague, right, in 1945. We know that it's liberated in May 1945. What happens in Griesinger's final days? You're absolutely right. So he was very disappointed not to be given a very good job at the beginning of the war. He's in the army, he's in the Wehrmacht, which is something he's very cross about. He wants a good office job in Central or Eastern Europe, part of the new empire. He finds himself going to France with the Wehrmacht and then going to Ukraine. And it's only in spring 1943 that he really feels as though he's made it. He gets posted to Prague as a lawyer at the Ministry of Economics and Labour. And he's there for two glorious years. And we're talking, Prague isn't like any other city in Hitler's Europe. It's even better than Paris in terms of German theatre, German cinema, German music, architecture. His daughters would go to the best German schools. It was too far away for Allied bombs to really make any difference to his life. So it really was a terrific posting. We see, even from the documents discovered in the armchair, just by looking at his passport, we see how much traveling he was doing at the time around the protectorate. We see, for example, that even he was able to go on a family holiday in July 1944 for a couple of weeks. So after D-Day and the liberation of Rome, he takes his family to Liechtenstein, which is where his wife's parents were living. And even at the beginning of August 1944, they still return as a family to Prague. But things obviously begin to change when we get to spring 1945. His wife and daughters leave Prague. They head back to Liechtenstein. And this is something that his eldest daughter especially really remembers these final days of their life as a family together. She really remembers the last time she saw her father. But after six years of brutal, horrific occupation by the Germans... Prague in May 1945 was a very difficult place to be if you were German. A lot of people had fled or evacuated by that time. Many had gone into hiding. And so there are many accounts of Germans being rounded up on the streets of Prague once the partisans were there, once the Red Army had arrived. There's cases of mass shootings, mass killings, rapes, etc., taking place against the German population. Then you have cases of tens of thousands of Germans being rounded up and taken and placed into camps in really terrible, terrible conditions. Of course, the conditions were not as bad as they had been for the Jews, perhaps in Theresienstadt and other camps at that time, but they were still pretty horrific nonetheless. Lots of deaths, lots of killings took place. And so Griesinger finds himself at that moment in a camp we know that he died in September 1945. And there are lots and lots of cases, even as late as September 1945, so months after the liberation of Prague, where Germans are still being executed. So not just being hanged after a trial or whatever, they're actually having summary executions. And at the last time I find Griesinger, he's in a hospital in Prague in September 1945. And his family, the Griesinger family in 1946, had sent somebody to Prague to investigate exactly what had happened to Robert Griesinger. And the information they discovered in 1946 was that he had been shot and thrown on a mass grave. Now, 
just exploring local archives in Prague, on no document will it ever say that. I never discovered anybody who was shot and thrown on a mass grave from a hospital. Often it would be listed that they had contracted contagious diseases. It never said cause of death, you know, partisans broke in and shot somebody. It would say dysentery or whooping cough or something like that. So there are many cases we know that people were killed. That's not always the cause of death. So we know, for example, that in hospitals, it happened on more than one occasion that Germans would be taken from their hospital beds, either by the Red Army or by Czech partisans, and they would be taken to the top floor of the hospital. And at the bottom floor, you'd have the partisans in the Red Army with their guns pointed upwards. And then the German would be thrown from the roof. And there was a competition to see whether he would die either by a bullet hitting him while falling or whether he would smash onto the floor of the hospital ground. It sounds like absolute chaos. But of course, you say about the life of Riley led by the SS officers and the German occupiers, but for the Czech population during those war years, it was, uh, well, far from a good time, was it? Absolutely. No, no, no. Especially before Griesinger arrived, when you had Heydrich in power in Prague, it was absolutely brutal. And it was even worse after Heydrich was killed. The, the reprisals against the Czech population were horrific. It sort of really got rid of any more resistance to the Nazi occupation, which was not the same elsewhere, you know, Yugoslavia, Poland, etc., where there was a much larger resistance network operating. By the time Griesinger arrived in March 1943, again, the resistance had been wiped out. So Griesinger had a very unceremonious end, but what happened to his family? So his wife and daughters managed to leave Prague. They end up in a village. They're on their way to Liechtenstein, but the driver won't go any further because of the Allied bombs. And again, so much of what I discovered was from family papers and from interviewing his daughters who were able to tell me exactly what they had lived through at this time. So they found themselves up in the Alps from about... April 1945, they were in Bavaria, in the south of Germany, and they became very, very ill at that time. You know, they were on the road with millions of Germans whose homes had been bombed. They had hardly any food, no money, etc. And they just waited and waited and waited because they were very unwell until Gisela, so Robert's wife, her father, who lived in Liechtenstein, was able to come and get the family. And of course, they had no idea what had happened to Robert. They thought that Robert was going to meet them in Liechtenstein or in Stuttgart or something at the end of the war. But of course, this never happened. And so one day they discovered that he had died. And then the daughters wanted to know more about their father. But they grew up not knowing about their father. They tried to ask questions. Their mother married again shortly after the Second World War. And so there were never any photos up of their father. She had more children. There was still a need to get more money in every day. So post-war life was an extremely difficult place for the Griesinger daughters. And I think eventually they just weren't able to ask questions. They had to give up asking their questions. How had they remembered their father? And did your research change their perceptions at all? Or was this something that was just a dark, untold part of their family history that they just didn't really talk about? Was your research quite shocking to them? I think, yes, it was quite shocking to them because, as I said, he died in 1945. 
The girl's mother remarried very quickly. There was no photo up of their father. But just like so many German children at that time, there really was this silence that existed throughout so many thousands of German families where they just didn't talk about the Nazi past. Children were dissuaded from asking questions like, don't ask your father, you'll upset him if you bring this up at dinner or whatever. So I think they weren't the only ones having doors closed when they attempted to find out more about him. They were shocked with what I told them, but I don't think they were angry. I don't think they were terribly upset because after all these years of not knowing and perhaps to themselves privately, it's the sort of thing they might have at one stage or another wondered. You know, they knew their father was working in Nazi-occupied Prague, so perhaps privately they had felt some of these thoughts at one stage or another, and I was just providing them with the evidence. But they never tried to change or disagree with what I was saying. They were never sort of saying, oh, well, he would have done this, or you've made a mistake, or you're misreading things, or my father. You know, they were really very much sort of accepting the information that I was presenting with them as fact. They really were. And they were trying to get their heads around it as much as they possibly could, because especially Griesinger's oldest daughter, really was a real daddy's girl, really remembered her father, always remembers wanting to please her father as a child. They were extremely, extremely close. So I think this information probably came as more of a shock to her than to her younger sister, who has few, if any, memories of her father. If anything, she, when I'm presenting her with this information, she kept repeating on more than one occasion that it felt as though I was telling her about a stranger, somebody who she had no connection to. So she was able to treat the information in a different way, perhaps, from her older sister. Well, I'm sure you were able to give her older sister a little bit of closure on quite a disturbing chapter of her own personal history. She actually used the expression on more than one occasion. She would thank me, etc. And then she would say stuff like, you are giving me back a piece of my past. It feels like I'm getting a message in a bottle. Daniel, I've got to ask you, because there's a remarkable moment in the book where your own personal family history intertwines with Robert's. Yeah, thank you for asking that, James. Absolutely. This is definitely something I was not expecting. As I said at the beginning, I'm meant to be this professional historian who writes about other people's families, which are always so much more interesting than my own. So I was never expecting at all to write anything about my family in this book. But when I'm plotting Griesinger's route east into Ukraine in June, July 1941, I was looking at the route and I had like little pins marking the map to show where he was going. And what was amazing was the letters that I was discovering and the memoirs from his exact unit. What had they seen? What was happening in Ukraine at that time? And the amount of anti-Semitism, the amount of executions that was taking place against the local Jewish population by his own unit, like this idea that the Wehrmacht, the soldiers were somehow conducting this gentlemanly war against the Red Army is total nonsense. And I think so many brilliant historians in the last 20, 30 years have done a fantastic job of showing what the Wehrmacht was actually capable of at this time, especially when the Jewish population was involved. And so my family, my grandparents were all born in Britain, but none of their parents were. And one of my great grandfathers, he came to Britain from a small village near Kiev. And I knew the name of this village. And 
I was just amazed to see the largest country in the whole of Europe, Ukraine, that one day in July 1941, Griesinger's unit stopped at this exact village and stayed there for an entire week. And I really, at that point, wanted to know much more about my family. I'd never asked questions until that point. I knew my family were in Britain during the Second World War. And I think like so many of us, when we think about family history, it's always a very vertical thing. We sort of think about our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. But what happens if we do push some of these horizontal doors? What about people's uncles or aunts or cousins? What about my great-grandfather's brothers and sisters? You know, what happened to them? Did they leave Ukraine? Did they stay there? Did their eyes meet Griesinger's when he was there in July 1941? So again, this is something I write about in the book. I'm really curious to know more about this family of mine called Pugach, who stayed in Ukraine and didn't leave for Britain at the beginning of the 20th century, and who were still living in Ukraine in 1941 when Griesinger arrived. That's amazing. So you didn't just delve into Griesinger's family tree, but you're able to really provide some light on your own family history as well. Absolutely. No, it was something totally unexpected, but goodness, was it extremely rewarding. Well, I think you've given us all back a piece of the past, because you said it right when you said that this sort of history has been silenced, silenced by, understandably, by the families who had to go through it. And you've illuminated this hidden part of Second World War history, and that everyday root of evil in Nazi Germany. Thank you so much, Daniel. Where can people read more about this? So my book is available to buy the SS officers armchair and it's available at all good bookshops and online. Brilliant, Daniel. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to get you back on the World War soon. Thanks, James. It's been such fun. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland. 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.